0: Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, and this discipleship series, we are doing Old and New Testament survey, and today I am going to pick up in Genesis, uh, and we're going to actually pick up in chapter 9, which is the first biblical covenant called the Noah covenant, Noahic covenant and um, we're going to talk just a little bit about that uh, and we're going to take off and do the next section of genesis okay so we are in genesis chapter 9 as i just said and what we see in that is we see god create this rainbow in the sky as a promise that he will never flood the earth again now the interesting thing is prior to the flood it had never rained and so a rainbow would never have existed in the sky because if you know from science how one's made um, you know, light reflects through those droplets of rain and we get this beautiful rainbow or, or a double rainbow even. Um, so, you know, we know from science that if it didn't rain, it would have been impossible to create that in the sky. So for Noah, this would have been the first time he's ever seen this phenomenon. It has never happened previously. Um, and so this would have been a big, huge sign um, of this. Now, the interesting thing is um, even the Quran has... The rainbow in it Um, and it has the story of the flood it's just some of the details are not the biblical account Um, they don't line up with the scriptural account fully Um, but some of the key pieces are in the Quran the one thing I want you guys to understand is that when you look at the Muslim faith um, they share pieces with the Jewish faith they really do Um, and as I get to some of these later generations you're gonna understand why they share pieces Okay, um, but they definitely and very clearly share pieces up to a point. Um, and the interesting thing, I and this is just me musing, but uh, the symbol for Muslims is a moon. it's a it's a crescent, and the thing about the moon is it's not the light. it's not a source of light, but it reflects the light. Um, and so for me, I think when I look at the Muslim faith, I see so much of... Uh, biblical truth reflected in pieces, but it's not the full story. And so uh, there is some common ground as far as Abraham. Uh, Jews and Muslims share Abraham as the father of their faith is what they would consider. And we'll get into this a lot more because I want to do a breakout on some of the major world religions. I'll do a series on just that that kind of does, um, from a Christian perspective, How do they get Jesus right? How do they get Jesus wrong? We'll do all of that. So, and some other key pieces. But that is one thing I want you guys to understand. And uh, the Quran does talk about Jesus. Now, um, Muslims will also recognize the Bible and the Old Testament as a sacred writing. However, they believe that it's horribly flawed um, and Inaccurate. Okay. And so what you under- need to understand is that they don't put it as high as what they would put the Quran. Um, and so the interesting thing is, we've talked in a previous podcast about the accuracy of scripture. And so you obviously can see that that is not true when it comes to uh, the Old Testament, and New Testament, the Bible itself. Um, it, history and science has proven its accuracy. Um, Okay, so let's move on a little bit. Okay, we have the sign of this rainbow in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we have a second genealogy um, because, of course, Noah and his three sons go on to have generations. So uh, what we get in chapter 10 is Noah to Babel, um, to the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11 is God changing the languages at the Tower of Babel um, because of the patterns that he was seeing happening within um, and sin kind of taking root yet again. Um, And so the the last part of chapter 11 is the genealogy from the Tower of Babel to Abraham, uh, who is initially called Abram. Now, why is Abram? so important well he is considered the father of israel now he's also the father of ishmael Um, and so what we'll see um, is that ishmael is the father of descendants who eventually become arabs Um, and so what do we have in the middle east we have the conflict between arabs and israelites and so that goes all the way back to this story of Abraham, and, and who first was known as Abram. Um, and so I really want to unpack the story of Abraham quite a bit, because it's so foundational to the New Testament even. Um, okay, so what we have in chapter 12 is the second biblical covenant um, first being introduced to Abraham. Uh, and this is... is he in the life of Abraham he tells him to get up and go to a land that he will show him. And the interesting thing about this is we're not told that Abraham's really seeking God out. We have yet another example like we did with Cain where God literally enters the life of a man and says, "Hey, hi, hey, I got something for you to do." Um, and And what we see here is beautiful. We see Abraham's response. Abraham literally packs up his wife and everything he owns, and he takes off in the direction he's told to, which quite a contrast from what we see with Jonah. Because when the word comes to Jonah that he's supposed to go somewhere, he heads in the opposite direction. So we definitely see mankind take different responses to God speaking into their world and directing their steps. Um, But what we have with Abram is we have a man who recognizes God's voice and he he obeys and so the recognizing God's authority and obedience go hand in hand in chapter 12 we have the second biblical covenant the Abrahamic covenant introduced and it's not introduced fully until chapter 17 with the institution of circumcision Um, but it's introduced uh, lightly I guess or in uh, an abbreviated format right here in chapter 12. Abraham journeys to Egypt actually at this point. And chapter 13, we have the altercation between Abraham and his nephew, Lot. Lot has actually chosen to go with Abraham. Um, and to be honest, it, it's almost like he parasites a little bit off of Abraham, um, because, you know, Abraham's so successful and so such an amazing leader. Um, in some ways. He's just a very wealthy man. Um, And so Lot just kind of comes up along his tail um, in a lot of ways. And so he ends up following him on this journey out. Um, And the interesting thing is we don't really see Lot have an interaction with God up until God literally has to forcibly remove him from from Sodom. Uh, so we don't really see anything that would suggest that Lot has a personal relationship with God. We do see him as an honorable man in the midst of sin city, so to speak, which is what Sodom you can call Sodom. Um and so in the midst of Sodom he actually is is fathering girls who are still holding on to their virginity and their chastity. So we know that he's somewhat holding his lifestyle differently, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so let me back up a little bit so Abraham, uh Abram and Lot uh, and all of their families are journeying um, to the place that God has told Abraham to go and along the way, they end up in Egypt um, and there's this interesting interaction that Abraham has with Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh kind of sees his wife and thinks she's beautiful. Um, and so he, he wants to um, literally take her uh, as part of his wife, because Abraham lies and said that she's his sister, not his wife. Now, for us women, we're horribly offended at that. Um, and I'm not really sure culturally exactly how that would have gone across. I can't imagine that that would have gone over super well. But I think what we see here is some of um, Abram's character. And it's character, this isn't going to be the first time that he does this. Um, and so this is kind of a character habit that when he's in a pickle, he resorts to a lie first um, before instead of telling the truth. And I think we're going to see that again and again. Um, and it's it's part of Abraham's treachery. Uh, it's part of his character flaw. And the interesting thing about these, these people in Scripture is God does not choose perfect people because perfect people don't exist. Um, and so we see characters who struggle with different things that we struggle with. Um, and so when you pull open Genesis, look for yourself in the characters that are in here because... They lived lives just like you and I do, and they struggle with things just like we do. Um, but God is faithful, and God walks them through the whole situation. Um, <laughs> Pharaoh, in this one, this encounter, ends up having plagues break out in his house because Sarai, Sarai is, is here. And so he comes to Abram, and he says, what have you done to me? Uh, I've treated you so well. And he had, like in the previous things, he'd— He'd literally given Abram all of these things. And to be treated so kindly by a ruler, you should have some confidence that you can look at him eye to eye and say, this is my wife. She's mine. You know, but for some reason, Abraham doesn't have that piece of character to be able to do that. Um, and so he, he's getting very nervous about, about the political leaders in the areas that he goes to. So it's really kind of interesting because in a couple chapters, we're going to see him actually um, make negotiations with kings, um, you know, fight kings and do some things. So it's really kind of interesting that his character falls apart in certain moments, especially when it pertains to his wife. Um, And so, I don't know, I just find that a little bit fascinating. Okay, so um, he obviously gets his wife back. um, And so heading into chapter 13, the first thing he does is he goes back to a place where he's built an altar to worship. Um, and so that's kind of the context to which um, all of this conflict breaks out between him and Lot. Um, and one of the things he does with this is he sits Lot down and he says, okay, we're just going to make a covenant between us. You go one way, I'll go mine. You know, we'll, we'll deal well with each other. You know, and if I don't deal well with you, may God punish me and vice versa. And so um, it's called a mitzvah. Um, And it's something that is kind of passed down traditionally within the Jewish faith. But it was a a covenant between men. Um, And so basically they agreed to part ways. And uh, Abraham yields the right to choose the direction. And I think that's pretty important to understand because he had the full right. He was the uncle. Not Lot was his nephew. So there was an age thing. But he was also the leader of their family unit. Um, And so he had a position of hierarchy by age, and he also had it by position and and authority and wealth and those kinds of things. But he yields first choice to Lot. Um, And I think we see some of the character flaws in Lot in that he lifts up his eyes and he looks around and he goes, oh, that's the good part. That's what I want. And he takes it for himself. Um, and so he heads down to Sodom, and he dwells in that direction. Now, the interesting thing is, by the time we get to Sodom and Gomorrah and what God's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's living in the city. At this point, it says he goes and he pitches his tents towards Sodom. Um, and so at some point, he goes and actually dwells in the midst of them. Um, and I think that's important to kind of understand is that, our company pulls us in, and so if we surround ourselves with godly company that honors and respects God, we get drawn into that company, and that's a good, that's a positive, um, but, uh, there's another scripture that says, uh, poor, poor company corrupts character, um, and so it's this idea of you become like who you hang with, um, okay, so, did you hear the mama come out in me? <laughs> Came out for just a second, okay, um, okay. So okay, we have the separating of Lot and Abram in chapter thirteen. In chapter fourteen, what we have um, is that Lot and his wife are kidnapped, um, and so Abram gets all of his warrior men, and he literally pursues these kings, and he gets he gets his nephew back. Um, so he defeats um, the kings that were with. Uh, I don't know, I'm going to butcher Old Testament names because, you know, <laughs> we don't have those kind of names now. But it looks like Chedor uh, Lamer or something like that. Um, and so, uh, basically, uh, this is where we have the entrance of Mechizedek, king of Salem, and he brings out bread and wine, and he's the priest of the Most High God. Now, the Most High God is the one that obviously... Um, Abraham follows to this foreign country. Now, the interesting thing is that he was a prophet or he was a priest and a king. Um, And he's the first and only priest king that we have in scripture. Now, there are some in the theological community, the Christian community, that believe that this might have been Jesus showing up, ministering to Abraham on the way back. Um, There's definitely some uh, manifestations of Christ in the Old Testament, where He shows up, and the you know we think that oh well Jesus doesn't come on the scene until the New Testament uh, in the birth of Christ, but that's not necessarily true. He existed all the way back in perfect fellowship way before in the void before creation happened. So. It's not outside of expectation that he would show up through history in moments like these and interact with Abraham or Moses or different people uh, throughout the Old Testament. So, this is one that um, later in Scripture. Jesus is referred to as a king in the order of Melchizedek. Um, And so there is some references to that, in that Jesus is also that priest king combination, and he's the only other one to bear that combination. So whether or not this is Christ or not, I don't know. I can't tell you. But it would be interesting if it was, wouldn't it? Um, I love the picture of him bringing out the bread and the wine because that's the beautiful imagery that would parallel to the Last Supper when Jesus brings out the bread and the wine, and he says that the bread is my body broken for you. Um, This is the wine is my blood poured out. Um, And so it would be a beautiful imagery. If this is indeed Christ, it's not too far-fetched to compare the two. Anyway, um, so I'll leave you chewing on that today. Okay, in chapter 15, um, we have Abraham promised a son, and we have a revisiting of that covenant. And so the covenant's reaffirmed in chapter 15. Um, And this is where Abraham has a vision and an interaction with God at that point, and God promises a son. Now, this is the first time he's clearly promised a son. And what we need to understand at this point is Abraham and Sarah are old, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it's officially become impossible for Sarah to bear a child at this point, point. Um, and so the, what's happening for Abraham is he's being promised something that if he tangibly looks at his life, and it has to stay within the confines of what is possible physically for his life, and Abraham and Sarah are... Obviously, in their humanity, going to struggle with the fact that God's promising something, and it's impossible. Um, and so, it doesn't—it shouldn't surprise us that, uh, in the very next chapter, we have Sarah take that promise in her own hands and try to make it happen physically. Because, let's face it, that's the core of the heart of each of us. You know, is that when we see impossible and there's something we think we can do about it in our human wisdom. We're going to run to our own plan first before we wait for God to do something impossible because that kind of seems crazy. Um, and so what we have is Sarah looks around and she does something that's very culturally appropriate at the time. Uh, and that's what we need to understand. Um, because barrenness was such a big deal in this culture, um, it infected, impacted inherent rights. It impacted all kinds of things. But for a woman, you were literally considered cursed if you were barren. Um, it, was, it was a blemish on you. It wasn't too far to assume that you had done something to create this or you were unfaithful as a woman or there was some reason that you were not able to have kids. Um, and so there was a whole lot of stigma associated with being barren. Um, so you, you have to kind of understand that and understand that culturally it was also very normal to look around and for a servant that you had or a handmaid that was younger and, you know, more fertile to in your place, literally gift them to your husband for the sake of an heir. I mean, this was her literally preserving her husband's, um, bloodline so to speak it was a big deal and so she's not necessarily sinning in what she does as much as the fact that she's trying with her human hands to accomplish God's purpose and that never goes well um and so what we literally have created is a whole lot of household turmoil and we have a second heir because God does fulfill his promise he does the impossible um And so what we have is we have a conflict between two sons. Um, Okay, so we have in chapter 16, Hagar is given to Abraham. Abraham goes in and Ishmael is uh, born eventually. And Ishmael's name is God Hears. Uh, And the thing I want you guys to remember is that Ishmael eventually becomes uh, the Arab race or the... um, the people that we call today the Arabs. Um, And so for Muslims, they would consider him a spiritual father along with Abraham, so Abraham and Ishmael. And that's where the Jewish faith and the Muslims diverge and separate, but before that, that's their common history, um, and so that's something I definitely want to point out for most of us, uh, especially in the Western world, America and so on, because we, we don't have that cultural peace, and I think that's incredibly important to understand, um, especially in light of what's going on today and its history in the Middle East. Um, Sorry, I got a little bit of studio noise going on today, so uh, that I'm not sure we're going to be able to filter out, but uh, that's all right. We're going to persevere for the rest of today's podcast. Um, Okay, in chapter 17, we have Abram having his name changed to Abraham by God, and uh, Sarah also changes, or sorry, Sarai changes to Sarah. Now the interesting thing about Abram's name at this point in chapter 17 is that he goes from being Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Um, And at this stage, circumcision is instituted in this chapter. Um, The thing I want you to understand is that names are incredibly important in the Old Testament. They either speak truths. They're part of prophecy. Um, they're they they just have tr- very significant meaning. And so, anytime you see a name change in scripture, it's important to pay attention and to seek out the the meaning of the changes. So you're going to see this again in Jacob when he becomes Israel. Um, there is a very clear, distinct name change, um, and almost mirrors. Uh, what Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, where um, in Ephesians 2, it talks about us before Christ and coming alive after Christ, but before being dead in our Mm -hmm. sins. Um, What we see with Jacob is that his name means deceiver. And so prior to his interaction with God, where God changes his name, uh, he is known by that character name. He is known to be a deception and known to be a deceiver. Um, And he actually is the one who uh, deceived his brother out of his birthright by conning his father. Um, and so we'll get we'll get to that story a little bit later on. But the one thing I want you to understand here is that we've got the first name change in Scripture. So we have him going from exalted Father to a Father of a multitude. Okay, and it's part of the covenant that God reaffirms with him at this point. Um, and then circumcision is instituted for Abraham and his household and all of his generations that follow. Um, and that circumcision is like the rainbow in the sky. It's something that was not done before this point um, but it was done to be a sign of the covenant promise that god made with abraham about his uh, the generations that would follow um and so uh this was a very clear sign of the covenant now each of the covenants has its own sign so that's important to kind of understand all right so god still has yet to fulfill that promise that's what you need to understand and sarah's not gotten any younger and abraham's not (laughs) gotten any younger Um, And so we get to chapter 18, and we have three men visit Abraham and Sarah. Now, the interesting thing is this is another Christophany, uh, and I haven't given you that term before, but I talked about it just a minute ago, where it's another one of those moments where they think that it might have been Jesus showing up. Um, And so the interesting thing is we have three men, which is that the Trinity showing up in in tangible, real form in front of him. We don't know. Um, You know, on this side of heaven, we won't know absolutely. Absolutely for certain. Um, but we have, you know, if they're angels, they're angels. But it's some form of um, of God showing up and God walking into the lives of his people. So, okay. So we have these three men come and they do a couple of things while they're visiting. Okay. But Abraham and Sarah do what you typically do when you have guests. Um, so you get to see the cultural hospitality here. Um, but One of the things that's promised is the birth of Isaac. Now, when Sarah, who's listening in, hears this, she laughs. And she thinks she's totally golden because she's in the tent preparing things and they obviously couldn't hear her. And all of a sudden we know that there's some deity to these guys because all of a sudden they ask her why she's laughing and so there's there's some interesting interactions here in that that definitely check out chapter 18 um but the other purpose is that while they're sitting there with abraham they look at each other and say should we disclose what we're about to do and so what follows is this amazing discourse where honestly i truly believe Abraham is allowed to discuss with the Trinity the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is one of the most astounding encounters recorded in Scripture where God literally reveals what he's about to do in Sodom because of its sin, and Abraham starts bartering. And Abraham says, Well, if there's so many righteous men, will you save the city? And you see these, you see these men kind of, uh, sure, okay. And then Abram's like, oh, I don't know if we're going to have that many. So Abraham drops the number. And he gets it down to, if there's 10 righteous men, will you save the city? Um, and that's about as good as you could go. And that's a stretch for Sodom. It was that sinful. And the interesting thing um, is at that point, they disappear. Um, And what you see in chapter 19 is the doom of Sodom. And those men show up in Sodom, and who do they meet right outside the gate? They meet Lot. And the interesting thing is we talked about earlier how Lot seems to be, although he's living in the midst of the city, he seems to be keeping his life somewhat holy from what's going on around him. And we don't know the full extent of that. We just know that in chapter 19, it seems to be that he's raising at least two daughters who aren't engaging in the sexual sin of the city. Um, you know, he says that they've never been with a man. So he's protecting his household to some extent. Um, and now it's it's honesty, honestly quite, it speaks volumes that he offers his daughters to these sexually perverse men instead of the angels. Uh, that definitely sends terror <laughs> waves through me. So you can definitely see how he's impacted um, by his choice of living. Um, but what we see is this beautiful encounter of them trying to encourage Lot to get out because they're at least honoring some of what he's choosing to live righteously, you know, no, he's not the shining example that Abraham is, but he's at least living differently somewhat than those around him. So, you know, God in his mercy, I think is counting him as one of the righteous men to save. Um, but he doesn't want to leave Sodom. And so he literally has to be forcibly removed with his family to a safe distance. And then he's told to, you head that way, and you don't look back. And unfortunately, the next story is Lot losing his wife because she turns around and she looks back. Um, And then we have the travesty of those two daughters um, defiling with their father um, in the next little bit. So we have, honestly, the story of just... I don't know. It's kind of tragic, honestly. Um, but you have that story in chapter 19. Um, now, in chapter 20, we actually have Abraham's treachery, too, uh, and another treachery recorded, um, where he's in this area that Abimelech, the king of Ger, is. Um, and for some reason, he, I mean, he's fought kings before in the area. He's, you know, he's a very wealthy merchant. He's got, he I mean, for crying out loud, he sat down with the Trinity and just bartered for Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and yet he's afraid of Abimelech, the king of Gerar. Like, I, I just don't get it. I mean, those will be some of the moments where you just wrestle with Scripture and you go, what? But yet you recognize the humanity of the people in scripture. They're living, breathing, Mm -hmm. fallen human beings um, who were doing whatever they could to follow God without the aid of the Holy Spirit. They did not have that indwelling Holy Spirit like we do. So consider how much we're held accountable for what we've been entrusted with, what seals us, Um, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, he says. Um, but, you know, obviously Abraham didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, God visited, but he didn't really dwell with man at that point. Um, and so uh, we have, what he does with Abimelech is Abimelech sees his wife, which sounds just like we just learned from <laughs> a couple chapters back with him and Pharaoh. Um, and so Abimelech takes you know, Sarah, who he thinks is just Abraham's sister, into his harem, so to speak, and God punishes Abimelech's entire harem. He closes all of the wombs of all of the women inside, Um, and so Abimelech eventually figures out that something's wrong too, so he didn't get a plague, but he had barrenness running vampant. Um, and so you have this encounter where Abraham has to fess up and, um, and basically he's, he's just kind of blessed and get out of here. (laughs) Um, and so 21, we see, um, that God finally accomplishes what he's promised. Okay. So we're getting to the end of today's podcast. So I've got to kind of take a pause for today, and we'll move on. But the last thing I want to say is after the treachery with Abimelech, chapter 21, we have a couple of things happen. We have Isaac is born, and then we have a peace accord with Abimelech that's kind of formulated. Um, And so um, during this chapter as well, we have one son sent away. So um, the altercation between Hagar um, and Sarah escalates to such a point that Um, Abraham looks at his wife and says, you do what you need to do to deal with this. And what Sarah ends up choosing to do is to send Hagar away. Now, the interesting thing is she's going away with a 14-year-old young man. Uh, Ishmael would have been around 14 when Isaac was born. Um, And so they're sent away and they grow up in the wilderness of Paran. Now, why why is that important, okay? Ishmael grows up And he marries into some of the daughters of Egypt, and they become the Arab nation. Um, And so you see them in the wilderness. So what wilderness is that? That's the wilderness of Sinai right outside of Egypt, uh, in between Egypt and the Promised Land. Okay, So we're talking about that entire area, which is the heart of a lot of the Middle Eastern conflict today. Um, And so I want you to remember that Ishmael is the Arabs that are fighting for that promised land. Um, Okay, so I'm going to pause there. We're going to pick up um, in chapter 22 with the offering of Isaac, um, where Abraham is asked to lay down the answer to God's promise, uh, the impossible promise that God had made him. Uh, In Isaac is the seed of all of these families that his name reflects, the multitude that he is to be the father of. And he's literally asked to put that on an altar. So that's a great place for us to pick up in our next podcast. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're enjoying these, and I'll see you next time. Then, meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep 6 and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.